Welcome to Highway Diary. I'm your host, Eric Collarbach. This is episode 392 with Alan Waugh, shaman, now author, his website, spiritwisdomhealing.com, his book that, uh, as I was informed, came out a month ago. I purchased it yesterday. I'm getting it tomorrow. Alchemical Ayahuasca, Take the Journey from Depression to the Sweet Spot. My guest, Alan Waugh. Hey, Eric. Thanks for asking me on. Um, so it's endorsed by Graham Hancock. How did you meet Graham Hancock? Uh, I met Graham Hancock about uh, 10 years ago in Beverly Hills uh, near Los, in Los Angeles. Uh, we, His son, um, Sean, uh, and I have a mutual friend, and Graham and his wife were coming to the US to do a book launch. And my mutual friend, who I had many times in, in ayahuasca ceremonies um, asked if I would be willing to lead Graham and his wife and family uh, in a ceremony. So that's how I originally met them. I, I did a, a ceremony for for them, you know, the family down in Beverly Hills at the house of my friend. And then we stayed in touch. And they actually uh, came up to Mount Shasta where I had a retreat center. And so the whole family came up there and did a, a I think a you know, five day retreat with me. And so, yeah, we uh, we connected then and stayed in touch you know, since that time. Yeah, you're a very special person. I've never met someone like you before because, you know, I was I was raised Catholic where the priest is at the front and, you you know, you're in pews and, uh, you know, I, 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 I'll never forget that you like performed a divorce ceremony with a demon I had. But before let's before I get to that, I want to tease that lead. I want to talk about your journey, because when I met you, I just remember one thing that you started as a you were a carpenter uh, apprentice in England, moving on to uh, a carpenter job. Uh, how old were you when something you felt something was wrong in your life and then you moved to Peru? Like, how how do you go from a carpenter in, in the UK to moving to Peru to train under shamans? Yeah, uh, well, as you can, most people, it's not a direct story. I was depressed. Um, I was slightly depressed in, in 12. It's probably starting in, you know, around about 12. Um, and around 17, I started doing a lot of LSD, you know, and drinking alcohol. Being English, that's kind of normal to drink alcohol. So, anything I could do to escape my normal waking reality. And so, uh, LSD kind of took me into uh, that unordinary space that it takes you to. Um, and it left him with, with a, you know, an awareness that there's more to life and more to the human brain and human experience that my own Catholic upbringing had uh, guided me to. And so I started rejecting that. I started rejecting what was considered the societal norms and the, the media and the um, cultural conditioning. And at 28, I was, uh, but the one thing that the LSD did do is it kind of took me deeper into my depression. I couldn't handle all these experiences I was having. I was emotionally fragile, highly sensitive. And so it actually took me deeper into depression. So at the age of 22, I, I stopped, decided I was never going to touch another psychedelic in my life. And that which is a, a laugh considering where my life took me eventually. But I, uh, at the age of 28, I, I got guidance from a spiritual voice that spoke to me for the first time and said, do I want to live? And if I want to live, I need to let go of all the belief systems that had caused me to feel depressed. So that was at 28 and I started traveling around, I was guided to 
by the same uh, ally, spiritual ally, to um, to go to Asia for 18 months to go on a spiritual journey to find myself and join others who are also on their own spiritual journey. So that was kind of how it started. And then that ended up with me going to South America for a year. Uh, that's the first time I went to Peru. But I actually also had started doing something in my head because of the LSD. I started doing med a meditation that kind of took me into other stratospheres. Um, when I started Buddhist meditation, it's like, wow, this is cool. I can go off into realms and, uh, you know, to visit other planets and different, you know, beings. And it's not until later when I arrived in San Francisco, eventually in 1990, that I found out that this was shamanic journeying. So that kind of took me into that world. Um, I moved a bit more away from Buddhism and moved more into the shamanic world. Um, but actually, uh, so I started learning, learning about shamanism. And so that's kind of like my, my path into that world. So I went to San Francisco first, and then I uh, moved to uh, Peru about a decade later um, to, you know, I had my first ayahuasca experiences then in 2005. Can you describe the mechanism of your misery between the ages of 17 to 28? What, what was it that was this unescapable gloomy feeling and was that a product of your environment what what do you can you describe the mechanism of it what was the driving force i do my best i do talk about it in my book actually uh you know in the, in the initial stages of the book um and well i was raised catholic i was in a very my father had been a monk and um you know so we were sort of very and i went to a monk a school run by monks and you know nuns so i saw by uh, hardcore Christians throughout all of my schooling and so there was a belief system that if, if you were unhappy it's because you'd sinned against God so because I was unhappy I believed I sinned against God and when, when you sin against God you do, you, develop, you develop a belief that God doesn't love you and if God doesn't love you then you're unlovable so I, I think that was the sort of like the, the root of it that I was unlovable and I was also a sinner and so there was there was no hope for me other other than to be depressed I was also uh, getting a lot of influence from my father, who was also depressed. So, you know, you, you learn through observation. And I thought that's how men are supposed to behave. <laughs> and so it, it all came from that. And then at some, some point, uh, I developed, thanks to my spirit ally, Amantane, at the age of 28, I developed the understanding that I was responsible for my own happiness. That, that was like groundbreaking. It seems obvious, doesn't it? That, you know, I'm responsible for my own happiness, but growing up in the Christian environment, as you, you well know, because you, you did as well, you believe that your, your happiness, your, um, you know, every, every experience that you have in your life that causes you to be either happy or unsound is directly related to your relationship to God. And, um, and so that, that's pretty much the foundation of, of my depression. I would say that one thing, one holdover that has been helpful from Catholic programming is dating, boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, husband, wife. Holding these levels of a relationship, although has uh, been heartbreaking for me, because from my perspective, the la my last three girlfriends cheated on me, you know, but holding to my guns and and as as far as getting taken advantage of in in relationships has been uh, a useful tool. Uh, but yeah, I totally uh, see what you're saying. We are responsible for our own happiness. I can be a really grumpy bumpkin sometimes, and then I discovered frisbee golf. 
And then when I'm playing Frisbee golf, I have a big old smile on my face the whole time. I'm like, this silly little game, you have, you can't ignore these things, you know? Yeah, the one, the one thing with growing older is, is that you sort of develop, hopefully develop wisdom and realize at some point that you are responsible for your own life and your own well-being. I was, you know, up until the age of 20, 28, I didn't have that awareness. And it's only when I actually kind of stepped outside the box because I was looking at my life from, you know, the, the eyes of the, in a way, the spirit world and the guidance I was getting from, from that, that uh, I realized, oh, yeah, I, I can actually do something about it. I can I can be happy. The path to happiness wasn't just a cl click of a finger, but um, I was guided very, and I not only was I guided, I made the choice to be happy. And that was that was really fundamental. The fact that I realized I did have a choice was new for me. And so I made the choice of that in that moment when I had that, in a way, epiphany that I was going to live. If I wanted to live, I had to live a life that was happy. And, and that making that choice was was really the turning point. Can you describe this uh, spirit guide? How did you come in contact with this entity? Um, well, it, it, as, as happens with a lot of people when they when they have in the middle of an existential crisis, I was in, living in South London on my own in my apartment. And I, I was literally on the day that I was going to commit suicide. And the voice from out of nowhere said, do you want to live or do you want to die? And I was like, who's that? You know, I've never, never had this before. Um, and I just said, well, I want to die, you know, obviously. And then he said again, do you want to live or do you want to die? And in that moment, I, he actually showed me, wasn't, he wasn't just talking to me. He was showing me how to access a part of myself, like a gentle, part, a loving part of myself that I hadn't accessed before. Because when you're depressed, you're, you're highly critical and, and judgmental. So that my normal framework he showed me how to access another part of myself which was a gentle more loving part of myself and within that point place of gentleness and, and self-love self-reverence i was able to say i want to live and he said well okay well this is how we're going to do it you know and so then he he showed me how to do it and his name's amantane um he revealed himself to me uh, it was only ever a voice until I started drinking ayahuasca. Then it, he he had a face associated with him and a body, um, but he's been with me ever since. So you know, thank thank God, literally thank God for a month and a. I had a similar experience. I didn't name mine, but um, I was I thought that mine was more malevolent than than um, than that than than benevolent and helping you. I, I when I met you in San Francisco. I had this like fear of failure demon. I met you uh, twice up there. Um, uh, so what, from your perspective, I mean, I remember what happened. I was one moment I was laying on this bench and then the next moment I was in the rainforest and this creature whose hair, it looked very much like the predator with like big dreadlocks that were interwoven into my musculature. And then when I, when I saw him in this vision that you, uh, uh, you provided for me, I, uh, he was looked at me like, Oh, Oh, you can see me. And then you performed a divorce ceremony uh, of this fear of failure demon. Now, when, when you're doing this work, how do you know who's my spirit guide and how do you know who's the bad guy? Uh, yeah, a feeling. I, I, I have, I'm very connected to my uh, physical body, my energy body, 
and I, I have a scent, I have a feeling in my body that will guide me as to uh, what what that energy is is all about, where it's located, and what I need to do to help my client get rid of it. What was that? Where where did where was I? What uh, is that? Yeah. Okay. So this is a long longer version than just uh, just yeah that. All right. So I'll just give you a, a, a sort of briefish overview. Is that a lot of the, our experiences in life related to dark energies, entities, etc often come in the form of uh, an intrusive quality that is a, as, is a thought form. So a lot of energies out there, you know, in, in the ether, they will enter our uh, energy field with an influential sort of quality to them. Um, and mo most of the time they tend to have density, uh, a thought form that maybe contains some of your father's anger, some of your, your mother's, um, you know, self-worth issues. And that has an influence you it sounds like there's there's a voice speaking in your ear you know from whatever that energy contains like you're not worthy you're gonna, you're gonna fail you know you'll never you'll never be a success which is basically you know fear of failure is a fear of success and so a lot of it can comes from that influence now what happens is that whether it's actually a living uh, autonomous being or whether it's something that just contains thought forms or belief systems that come from you know other influences it's hard to differentiate I, I tend not to worry about it too much I, i'm most interested in actually just helping you to live a life without that influence so that you can live from a more more sovereign place so that's what i'm working on i'm not, I'm not worrying about whether it coming from some sort of uh, arrangement with other beings or, or whether it's just something that's having a negative influence in your life i tend to just want to focus on what it is help you get rid of it i, I tend to call it extraction uh, it could be con considered a divorce you're divorcing yourself from that um that influence i tend to i extract it and i i know how to extract it because i um i can feel in my body where it's located and what i have to do to help convince it to leave you know so uh, it's it's quite convoluted process there's, there's many areas that i cover some of it is psycho spiritual I want to know what that what influence that particular energy has uh, caused you in your life you know maybe when it came in how long it's, how long it's been there because the longer it's been there the the harder i have to work in a way to to help to convince it to leave um but just sort of what influence it's had on your life in this case it was your your fear of failure but the fear of failure in a way is just the, the surface um you know outcome of, of what this influence has had ultimately Fear of failure would, would be, uh, again, a fear of success. Why do you have fear of success? Possibly because you feel worthy to succeed. Um, where did that come from? You know, so then the influences, I trace the influences back. Uh, and then I have like a whole picture about what, what this has had on you. And then uh, how I can then work to release the influence that from you. Mm. Yeah, so it's, it's a quite an interesting process that it is, you know, involved. Uh, very interesting what you said. You 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 can choose to be happy, and also you set the goal of like what happiness is. So then you can manifest the goal of of what a happy life would be. So when you set the goal, you can reach the goal. When the goal is, it's like if you don't have a plan, someone else is going to write your plan for you, or you're going to be like, you know, in the Catholic Church clapping the priest, and when. Prince Andrew goes by in a motorcade, 
of kiss asses, you're going to be just a non-player character clapping seal, or you can take life into your own hands, set your own marker, set your own goal. So for me, um, you know, I was very focused on outcome. Like my big goal for myself was to be the best comic I could possibly be, be the funniest possible person. And then I went on a tour in 2018 and I filmed 50 shows along this tour. And then it took a year and a half to edit. Looking at it, I think that's the funniest special ever. Now, whether or not the success reaches that, I actually hit my goal. And in my mind, I've done it. So like, um, you know, I thought that, you know, comparison is the thief of joy. I'm like, well, I'm not getting that show. I'm not getting that opportunity. I'm not getting that instead of having gratitude that I actually pulled off a life mission for myself, you know? Excellent. Yeah. And, uh, you know, wherever that leads to, you know, I just say, uh, from a more empirical viewpoint, we live in a benevolent universe. If, if we sort of, in a way, have a, a flow of confidence within ourselves that we, we can uh, achieve a level of success that is beyond even our wildest dreams, if you have that confidence and you have intention in, and uh, belief in yourself, you can, you can reach those goals. So your, your, your level of success is directly related to your level of belief in yourself and the confidence that, that you put out into the universe. And, and it, it's, it's manifest, you know, that's the law of uh, attraction, law of manifestation. And I've, you know, time and time again, I've seen that true with myself and my clients. And so that, that's what, what I would say, you know, you, that within you, yourself, Eric, there's a level of confidence that you allow to flow to, and you will achieve the level of success that you, at some level, believe in yourself. And if you want to achieve high levels of success, then it's important to allow more energy to flow, which I call confidence. Energy flow is confidence, and it's directly directly related. So, um, yeah, it's something we, we you know we all have to work on. And um, again, you know, the the fear of failure was related was directly to related to your fear of success. And so, um, you know, you, you, there's an, it's important to look at all all the avenues that you that you work on in yourself as to how uh, willing you are to, to be the, the best and the highest version of yourself and, ex and exceed that, you know, continue to strive and to, to break through the, your comfort zones to, if you want to be a very successful comedian or, the, you know, a, a comic star, then it's important to uh, allow yourself to access the place inside of you where you, you have no limits to the amount of confidence and the amount of success that you're willing to allow for yourself yeah i mean jealousy is certainly a, a pill that i i gotta like completely ignore but it's funny because a lot of the people that took shortcuts like oh i did comedy for two years and then i recorded a special the the backlash on the internet of haters with very very intelligent criticisms are you know for certain people that cut the shortcut and do this and then put out a stand up special well you're yeah. filming of yourself doing comedy against the greatest ever comics that have already done way better than you so it's almost like an olympic runner who doesn't yeah. train and then their time is like 25 minutes to run a mile when there's like 5 minute miles out there and reddit and like places like the, the internet is not confused when someone puts out a bunch of garbage. 
So yeah, for me, it, there's like karma associated with people that took the shortcut. And I'm just, I just write really like, like I prepare for shows like the Unabomber. I overwrite, I over prepare. And then, you know, I do well on stage. So I'm like, well, there's two ways to do it. What a bunch of comics go out every night and they never write. And to me, it's very obvious. I go out rarely. I pick my spots, but I write, I overwrite for them. So I'm not sure. Yeah, it's, it's all part of the apprenticeship, isn't it? And some people, you know, kind of get the breaks. Um, but certainly the internet has allowed people to find fame really quickly or money really quickly um, in a way that it never has historically. And you're, you're, you're doing it the way that has, is traditional, more traditional. So you've I got just to earn want, your chop. I just want integrity. For me, that's a currency. It's just my own personal integrity. Looking at myself in the mirror and go, buddy, you yeah. did... You, you know, sometimes just want to make money, you know, quick. Yeah, um, but I I set my sights on uh, the most evil person in the world, Klaus Schwab Jr., who's evil, and I or Klaus Schwab, and I want to bully him until he kills himself because he's making the world shit. So I just set that. That's my intention. That's my barometer, and we'll see how that goes. Um, I hear the World Economic Forum is a den of vipers eating itself alive from the inside because. Full narcissists tend to do that. So I'm just going to let it happen. Um, you've, you, uh, so I met you in San Francisco. Then you moved to Mount Shasta. Is there like a spiritual reason why you went there? Is it on some sort of ley line? What is, why is Mount Shasta an important location for you? Yeah, Mount Shasta is an important location uh, for many people. It's a volcano. Volcanoes, they're, they're new. Their new energy volcanoes tend to be well. They newer the newest mountains of all the volcanoes. They have a lot of power. You know, there's a lot of power under the earth, and so you know, like Hawaii is is uh, made from volcanoes, and that's also considered a, a spiritual vortex. So that's the thing with Mount Shasta. It's a, it's a volcano. It is considered the root chakra of the earth. A lot of people consider it the root chakra of the earth. Um, I don't necessarily consider it that. I actually consider it, consider it more the, the heart, heart chakra, um, just from the experiences I've had there. So, yeah, I was drawn there because I wanted to open a retreat center, and I knew there would be a, a place that I could help people to a level because um, the spiritual vortex is the, the power of the, the volcano. They amplify um, the prayer that you offer, you know, and so the prayer that I was offering was to help people, you know, live their best and... Um, most powerful and healthiest life. So I, I moved there because I could, I knew I could help people in a deeper way. Wow. So you used the nature to help your work. Did it amplify the angels and demons uh, and good and bad entities that were uh, inhabiting your the hosts of your clients? And was it easier to do the work to vanquish the dark entities and and support the light ones there is like the veil thinner yeah it could definitely do that it's, it's interesting i'm actually as an anomaly you um there's a the place I, I can consider it uh, the closest to not just geographically but in a way the sort of the quality of the energy is sedona and sedona is a lot bigger it's been in a way a spiritual hub for, for longer than mount shasta in, in let's say in the new age sort of world, not necessarily the indigenous world. And so Sedona attracts, you know, there's a lot of spiritual chicanery that happens with any spiritual area, whether it be a, um, a kibbutz or 
a uh, ashram in India. You know, it's going to attract people of all, of all uh, stripes. Um, so Manchester has a fair degree of that, and they, they bring in a sort of a darker energy, a dense energy. I also knew I was going there to, to bring the light, the power, um, but also the grounding, you know, because shamanism, which is my healing tradition and belief system, is very much related to the natural world. It's an animistic belief system that everything has consciousness, everything has... has uh, has intelligence, and my, my, role, my role is to have people connect with that because you know we are nature we forget we're nature we, a lot of people believe that nature is just something to uh you know it's a commodity that for our own sort of benefit and enrichment uh, and so we, we lose a lot of touch with with the natural world and when we are out of harmony with the natural world we're out of harmony with ourselves because we're part of nature but i realized that i needed not just for my clients myself i was i grew up in london I, I lived in San Francisco, I lived in uh, Cusco, um, and uh, so I, I was in Peru. I, I was used to living in cities, and I, I knew that to continue doing the work to, to a deeper level than I had been, I needed to be immersed in nature. And, you know, the, the nature in Mount Shasta is so powerful, so beautiful, so expansive. And I knew, I knew bringing people to that environment from the cities would actually be a big part of their healing. And um, so there was, a, there is a darkness in Mount Shasta, and I was doing the best I could to help to neutralize that, and then amplify the the positive that there is in that area and within my clients. Now this comes from an unreliable narrator. This this information that I'm about to drop on you because. Um, uh, one of the most recurring guests on my podcast is a guy called James Robert Wright, who was he worked for the Dallas Scottish Wright um, Freemason building. And he claims that there is a cloning facility in a deep underground base in Mount Shasta. And he also claimed that there was a man called Eli that he helped rescue from this per from this place and he sent me one jpeg as evidence of uh this uh i have never been to mount shasta uh have you heard of any odd deep underground military base in mount shasta there's definitely lots of talk there's a lot of talk about uh underground bases space spaceships you know land there uh, there's a, a culture, um, ancient culture called the Lemurians that live there. There's a city called Telos, and the, the Lemurians that live there are known as Telosians because they live in Telos. Uh, there's a lot of UFO activity. There's a lot of you know, uh, otherworldly experiences that you can have there. I, I can't refute any any of it. You know, whether it's true, there's a CIA base. I know that there is activity that can't be explained uh, with people driving black stretch cars and wearing dark suits and sunglasses you know there's, there's definitely evidence of, of sort of like government uh influence in that area and there's also been you know black hawk helicopters flying over mount shasta and things like that which there's no reason for that to happen so i've definitely heard it uh, i've never experienced it i've definitely experienced ufos and um strange behaviors uh, from both people and um, energetic forces so yeah, I'm pretty open to to what there is there, and if there's a if it's a cloning facility, or um, whether it's a, an underground city or interstellar refueling depot, 
I can't I can't speak to them. I, I know there's a lot of sort of interstellar activity and un, unusual, unexplained uh, phenomena that happens there. What was the name of that race? Like Telelium? What is? Yeah, Telosians. They're actually from the. Uh, it's the city that uh, there's a story around about you know twenty thousand years ago that where the Telosians and the Atlanteans are the two great civilizations on Earth. And there was kind of like a, let's say, a, a battle between the two of them. Uh, and the the Atlanteans got wiped out, not from the battle, but from their desire to, um, well, actually to clone, really their desire to clone. They went against natural forces and they, they got wiped out by a, a kind of a pandemic. Um, and the, the Lemurians decided to go underground. And one of the places they went was Mount Shasta, that's the story. And so the ones that live in Mount Shasta, in the tunnels in Mount Shasta, the underground city, they're known as Telosians. It's a bit like people from London. They're English, but they're called Londoners because they live in London. The one, the ones, the Lemurians that live in Mount Shasta are called you know, Telosians because they live in Telos, the the, the Emerald City, that's a mythological city that lives inside the, the mountain. And that's that's the story up there. And there's plenty of people that have a lot of information about that. Hmm. Um, there is a lore of secret societies that, <clears throat> for example, if we try to have all out nuclear war, the watchers or some sort of benevolent race that we can't see, maybe Telosians, will disarm nuclear devices so that they can't be deployed and have a mutually assured destruction of the planet. Like they'll let us play in our aquarium that we call earth but they have certain rules where they're like yeah no nah. it's almost like uh you know like a baby with a with a handgun it's like okay i'm the parent here let's take the handgun out of the baby's hand you know it, do you feel that there there are watchers uh watching over humanity uh, definitely Humanity, humanity is a failed government for, for a lot of people's belief system, and I have heard yeah that there's uh, there are you know, for one of the better word watchers uh, guardians that are looking at how we're playing out this storyline, and uh, I've heard that you know many times in the U.S. nuclear weapons have been neutralized by sort of interstellar beings or you know, UFOs pay us visits and neutralize nuclear technology. And uh, so I've heard, heard that, I have no, no direct experience of that. I do believe there are benevolent forces and there's you know, also malevolent forces that are influencing our lives on the earth. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I get in arguments with my family over Thanksgiving. I don't think Joe Biden is the original. When you see pictures of him from 1998 and when you see pictures of him today, that's not the same guy. Is it a, is it a rubber mask? Is it a clone? Is it, I mean, like... A shape-shifting lizard makes more sense than a guy who go, whose main campaign promise was to smell young girls' hair and eat ice cream uh, had a uh, $80 million, $80 million vote victory more than Obama. To me, that sounds like um, the Tooth Fairy and stuff like this. Um, I don't... So when it's like shape-shifting lizards and, to, and the watchers and um, I'm like that makes more sense than uh, a democracy because we sure don't live in one of those here in the yeah. States. It seemed like it. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't pay much attention to politics anymore. Uh, I used to at one point, uh, but yeah, any sort of little videos I've seen of of Joe Biden, it, it doesn't it doesn't seem fully human. So fully, you just you he goes to G twenty and poops his pants. It's like what's going on? That was you know. It's embarrassing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very embarrassing for the U.S. to have him as president. I think it's kabuki theater. I think it's it's a form of gaslighting. You yeah. know, if we were having a confrontation, Alan Waugh, and I poop my pants, that would sort of end the end the confrontation, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can imagine world leaders around a, a board meeting, I wonder how. Yeah, I mean, I wonder how other world leaders uh, relate to him when he's in a room and you know not able to finish a sentence, and, um, you know, not not know which door is, would lead him out. You know? And things like that. So it's, it's it's quite embarrassing, yeah. I would say. And uh, I lived in the US for for thirty five, thirty two years, or so, uh, and I loved living there for probably at least twenty eight of them. And then I stopped enjoying it. You know, part of the reason I left. What, did uh, the COVID lockdown have a reason why you had to uh, leave Mount Shasta, and now you live in Ecuador? Yeah. Actually, you know, it did. COVID did have an influence uh, because I met my wife, Diana, because of COVID. And the very, you know, the first month of lockdown, I met my wife in Mount Shasta, where she was living. And so because we're together, we decided to make the joint decision to leave and open a retreat center down here. And so COVID was involved. Yeah, I was actually open throughout the whole of COVID. We had clients like clambering over each other to, to come do retreats with us. But you, you know, you follow love. That was a part. That was a chapter of your life that you hadn't to. Now you have a ring. I, I don't yet. I just turned thirty-eight. I'm still. I'm. I, you know, yeah. better late than never. Sure. I, I don't think. I don't know how old I was. I think I got married when I was around thirty-eight. My first first marriage. Hmm. Um. So I think that you you fight there's other people that can fight on a political realm but then you realize that there's a lot of chicanery there in the political realm and it's all theater so i think the heart chakra of humanity is the spiritual realm which is your battlefield um i feel like me uh i i work at a boxing gym and uh monday to friday uh monday to thursday rather and i think that's a good way to give uh what was missing in my life was confidence and you had a big um influence on me but then after after i saw you uh maybe two years later i took up muay thai kickboxing when i was like 27 so maybe i saw you when i was 26 or so and muay thai kickboxing was another huge element because what happened was i uh, you know, I had the longest relationship ever, uh, four years of my life fall apart. And then, you know, I was starting to go ball. That was like playing with my confidence. Like all, all of my, my deck of confidence cards were just getting ripped off one by one by one. And then I, uh, I was like, man, I could be, and then I watched like a Jason Statham movie and I'm like, I could be bald like that kind of bald, but I can't be bald like a a big fat bald guy. So let me try to get dangerous and Muay Thai kickboxing was another huge elevation of my confidence because I I remember I was doing this show and I was using the same material 
But without the love of the girlfriend, was that was surgically removed from my life. Now I started bombing with the same material. And I realized, like, wait a minute, th these are the same jokes and they're not working because I hate myself. Like, there's like this other missing element. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, though, because stand-up comics often do hate themselves. I think Seems to be like the secret ingredient, you know? I think we're like comic. you. We're like you. We try to take the world's pain and, and make it into laughter. You know, I think I think that's what we do. And the reason for that is something's missing in us. We try to treat others the way we want to be treated. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I in my, you also read in my book how I used to be the, the funny man, you know, when I was living in England. I always used to be the uh, joker. And I, I, I saw one of the lines I used, I used it to try and. Uh, uh, what, did I, what did I say now? Uh, it's, it's like my pain management. You know, I was using it for pain management. Um, but I was also incredibly funny because one of the things is that you can use your pain to, re to reach a level or depth inside of yourself that has, this that has this brilliance. You can almost connect to brilliance through pain. And I know a lot of comics uh, have you know, been able to access their pain or musicians to release the, uh, you know, the brilliance that they have. I know... I remember reading something by Annie Lennox, the singer Annie Lennox years ago, and somebody said, you know, do you, do you feel your music is, good, is as good today as it used to be? She said, no, because I'm happy. I totally agree with that. I don't want to name names, but I, I was at a show and there was this kid who, like, he's got good management, he's got money, he's handsome. And when I watched him on stage, he did not do well. And there's that missing element of the torment. Yeah. Sure. Uh, there's one quote uh, thing I use in the book, metaphor, which is you know, I used to take singing lessons and, and my teacher said, because you know, I wanted to sing higher. I had quite a sort of high range or a big range. I wanted to sing higher. And I said, how do I sing higher? And she said, sing lower. And she said that you're, the height that you sing will match the depth that you can get to. And it's quite a good metaphor for life, you know. And so my singing did get higher. And I, I believe that that's also related to what I just said. That sometimes you have to sink into like the real depths of despair to bring out the brilliance. But at the same time, you you can then learn. I don't want people to to only achieve exceptional an exceptional life through accessing darkness. I help them to access that without the pain. That's, that's kind of what I've moved towards now. I have a different way of into when I worked with you. Um, years ago, I still include what, what I use, but I, I add, add other elements to it as well. And um, one of which is everything coexists. You know, the pain coexists with the the beauty, the hatred, and the, and the love. They coexist, and the, the fear and, and the um, the courage they coexist, and the doubt and the confidence they coexist. So, just through making particular internal choices, you can. Uh, in a way, elevate yourself beyond the density that causes the, let's say, the negative reaction or emotions. And you can just move into that flow of energy, which is love and happiness and creativity. You actually don't need to go to those depths. That's, that's one way that we learn. But I think you need to go, go into those depths when you're younger. And then, then you learn another way. And uh, so life becomes happier as a result. But I think what you're, you're in your you know, late 30s now, You'll find, you'll find actually you're moving to another uh, realm within yourself where you actually don't, you, you've already learned everything you need to learn with sort of, you know, fear of failure and sort of uh, 
lack of belief in yourself. You've already learned that. You only keep keep bashing your head against it, and then you can really step into your power, your brilliance, in a way when you let go of it, when you transcend it. So you'll you'll find that happening. Uh, yeah, and um, just uh, it's weird how uh, I. I had a like a life uh, change uh, maybe like three months ago where I started to like pour a lot of energy into my godson who is my ex-girlfriend's kid, but he's like my best friend. He's 13. And what's so funny is like he has like an opposite ex uh, middle school experience than I had. And so like I remember in middle school and maybe this was like the deep wound that I came to you with years later. But I remember in middle school, I think I asked out like 10 girls, uh, do you want to go on a date with me? And they all rejected me until I I don't think I had a like a, a girlfriend until sophomore year. So I was like, it was like the 11th girl I asked out was like keen to go to the movie with me. I went trick or treating last night with this kid and girls were coming out from behind the shrub in a nice suburb, screaming his name from across lawns, running up to him. And he was just like, whatever, whatever. I mean, I would have killed to have this kid's uh, looks and charms. But what's missing is like, his, you know, his father figure is in jail. Well, his dad's in jail. And so, um, you know, I kind of stepped up uh, in to give him the yin and the yang because he's being raised by a single mom, you know. And so, like, I kind of like calibrated to his needs and and he does you know he's he's you know she's doing the best she can she he's 13 he's lived in 15 places he's very good at um i remember when i was trading candy with my friends we had everything and we would have these big sacks of candy i was very like this for that no hey if you give me a reese's pieces i want an m&ms i made sure everything was fair when we got back he was like hey what do you want and he's like, he can do with nothing because, you know, they've lived in all these different environments. And to him, he's very Buddhist. Like, uh, yeah, the candy doesn't make me happy, you know. Um, and, and so I'm like, but he does have this like kind of like mm, dissociation type of thing. Like, like teachers are saying he's getting like ADHD symptoms. And so I'm trying to kind of teach him to focus in on his homework and, and the things that like he needs to get done. Like he can let his hygiene go and he doesn't, you know what I mean? So there's certain things I'm trying to sure up. He can get some cavities because he's like, that's all bullshit. I'm like, yeah, well, cavities aren't bullshit. So maybe we should. Uh... So there's just like, I just kind of go in, give him encouragement where he's needed. I took him, uh, you know, go-karting, but just the relationship, because I don't have any kids. And, uh, you know, the relationship is like so healing for the both of us. I didn't, I didn't know, um, that that would be like a, a missing element in my life but then when we started hanging out it's like dude I, I now i hang out with him three four days a week every week i'm going to a school play tomorrow i'm going to pick him up from play practice today it's a big yeah. motivating factor to you know be of service to this kid yeah it's good and it's a mutually beneficial you know, arrangement i'm sure absolutely so uh but it's just so funny how he has like zero of the insecurities i had so i'm like Huh. I don't I don't know how to like talk him off the ledge as far as like ladies that disappoint him because that could not be any further from his situation. So I'm like, he's like, whatever. Yeah, all the girls want me, whatever. I don't know how he feels about himself. Yeah, I know. I had uh, a client years ago 
who was probably the most beautiful client that I'd ever worked, physically beautiful client, that woman that I'd ever worked with. She was suddenly beautiful and she came to me because she uh, was depressed, she was anxious, she couldn't breathe because of the anxiety and because she felt ugly and that she, you know, um, she was almost afraid to be seen. And so, you know, looks definitely weren't a you know, factor in the way she looked at herself. And so, yeah, whatever you feel like internally is like the, the real beauty. And I know that I have definitely done a lot of work on myself in that area. And that, you know, I, uh, I feel like I'm uh, pretty hot. You know, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have said that when I was in my 20s. <laughs> Absolutely. Whether other people see me as that, I don't know. But um, you know, that's the way I feel about myself and I'm happy about it. No, you're a good looking man, Alan Waugh. It's a pleasure to know you. But it's just, uh, it's so um, funny how it's like, I, I feel like also there's a there's a, a double-edged sword in being an attractive person because you, you're not forced to develop a personality because people are attracted to you because of how you look. But um, but if you if you have looks and you're charismatic and you do your homework and you like take it, boy, the 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 sky's the limit and you have confidence and X, Y and Z and you do, you know, so I'm trying to be like, hey, man, let's let's work on uh, the shady areas and you're not going to have much problems in life, you know, the full package. Yeah, my, my wife, uh, Diana, is she's from Trinidad. She's kind of got uh, you know, brown skin, look Indian looking. She's, I, I would have to say, most people also think that she's stunning, stunningly beautiful. But she doesn't, she doesn't like to call me, call me to like, uh, like me to call her beautiful because she feels that it kind of separates her from, you know, who she really is at her heart, which is like incredibly competent, uh, confident, you know, smart, um, everyday lady and, and she thought that part of the thing is that in her life she's just been labeled this beautiful woman and people don't really sort of take her seriously in many other areas of her life you know and, and she certainly does take herself seriously in those other areas and she yeah, she sort of in a way educated me about what it, what it's like to to be really beautiful in the world especially as a woman um that they are not as not as happy as you would think that they would be because of their looks yeah, you always have to question people's like motivation around you, you know. Um, but uh, what was it? What was the process of writing? Was it was it a catharsis? Did did it stir up stuff for you that you thought you you like? Did it stir up demons that you thought you've already slain? Like what what was the feeling? Well, I say even starting the process of writing, you know, I, I definitely was. I've had this on the back burner for about seven years. Uh, part of it, you know, the procrastination of that period was it's just way too much work. You know, I, I, I feel I'm a good writer. You know, I write lots of blogs and newsletters. I feel it comes quickly. But just just how on earth am I going to write this book? There's just way too much information that I want to share. And so I use that as an as a excuse not to write it. And actually, because of having some time in the pandemic and having Diana there sort of supporting me, I was able to sit down and pretty much write every day. Very, very cathartic. It's not, it's not, it didn't end up the book that I started writing. I actually believe it's the book, uh, a better book than I, I would have initially written. Um, I definitely did a lot of, uh, a lot of editing. You know, it's, it's probably about half the size that it would have been originally. And uh, I think it's fairly, fairly concise. It's, it's uh, we both, you know, Diana edited, Diana edited it. We're, we're both very proud of it. We, we both feel it's a, it's a really good book and it will help a lot of people. Um, but, 
but yeah, the process was, uh, you know, get it down on paper, just channel it, get it on paper, and then what the hell am I going to do now? Because it just it was just way too much stuff, and it wasn't organised. And so, first year was writing. The next the next six months uh, was really about editing and refining it, and just cutting huge sections out. Yeah, did but, it, did you feel like like almost like the you know a hoarder? who has to finally like get rid of your uh you know all these like urns that are taking up space did you feel like you were like losing your babies when you had to like chop these sections off no not really i actually because uh, i can always write and you know, put it in another book i kind of dragged and copied and pasted it to another file so i can use it to put another book but generally the the, the general uh consensus of my first book that your first book you want to put everything in there and so I had to, fortunately I have a, a friend who works in the pub, publishing industry and he read it initially, he said, you, you know, this is a, a tradition, typical first book, you've got everything in there, you just, it's just too much. So with, with his advice, I actually chopped and burned a, a lot and with Dinah's help, you know, we really refined the languaging, you know, because I, I can be quite wordy and it's not, it doesn't, uh, it's not necessary to be wordy. So we, we kind of like refined it so that, it, it had a particular energy to it that I wanted to convey. Um, so I feel that it does convey it. And it's not, so it's not really just, it's not just words on the page, it's actually an energetic component to it as well, which I feel is quite successful. Mm. Well, I, I've, uh, been, a, I've, been, I've been your client twice and there's something very special about you. I can tell you, I've never uh, had a spiritual experience like that in my entire life. The, the two times uh, I met you and I, there's something very special, but I just, I don't want to uh, end on a negative note, but I, I just something clicked in my head and I want to like rewind the tape a little bit because yeah, I've been to Sedona, Arizona and uh, my sister got her aura photographed. And then I, which I think was sort of, um, she was very uh, convinced by it, but I think they put a kaleidoscope on the front of a Polaroid camera. And then um, I went upstairs and I talked to some kind of shaman character who just gave me like a really motivational speech that was very interesting. But um, and then you get a map of, at a gas station of all the vortexes. And, you know, I just thought we, me and my sister had a lovely hike, which was, which was, you know, the exercise in the fresh air was, was, was good. I'm not sure about the vortex spiritual energy zones. I'm not sure about that. Um, it's interesting that you kind of bring up ley lines, but you said uh, that there was a lot of spiritual chicanery goes on. Now, when you confront other spiritual teachers, like, do you have, um, you, you want to be friendly colleagues with them, but is there any like pet peeves that you have of like people, other people in your field uh, doing uh, the wrong yeah. thing? Yeah, talk about, uh, let's say Mount Shasta. You know, it's a vortex. It has all this mythology around it. You know, the Lemurians, the, the CIA bases buried deep underground, the Telosian city. I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not denying any of it could be possible. Uh, but a lot of people, they'll, they'll give a tour, you know, a spiritual tour, and, and, you know, speak to people as though it's the truth, um, which is, it's their truth, but it's, you know, it's not necessarily the, you know, the empirical truth about what it is. So they're using like a lot of theatre, a lot of uh, you know um, telling to create a notion about something that they are putting across as truth. I, I tend to when I do tours of Manchester or did tours of Manchester, I'd always, I would always start off with this is my version, 
you know, of, of what's happening. This is my version. You can, you know, take it with a pinch of salt or, you could, or it can entertain you for, um, you know, two hours. So the, what, what I have found is that a lot of people, they have, they, they uh, make promises or offer things that, first of all, uh, are, are embellished, they're exaggerated. So in, in that sense, I, I feel that uh, they're not being truthful and they're being uh, you know, a bit fraudulent. But at the same time, if the person that's going on that tour is, is getting something from it, is, in, is entertained, is getting an experience, and they feel happy with what they got, fair enough. You know, there's, some, there's somebody for everybody. And we're all, we're all at different levels of you know, spiritual awareness and development. And some people, they just want an experience. You know, they just want to be, oh, I'm going to Mount Shasta. There's all these different possibilities. I want to be entertained. And it's almost like somebody is, is being an actor for them for three hours. To, it's a bit like, you know, some of these uh, tours of, of London with Jack the Ripper. And you kind of like take them back to those times and pretend that you're you know, one of the detectives in, the, in that era looking for Jack the Ripper. But, you know, in, in London, you know that it's just like play acting. Like it's just role playing. And they're giving you an experience. In Mount Shasta, people put it across there as though it's actually the truth, uh, and so they're being a little bit fraudulent with that. And also, pretend, you know, suggesting that they can give somebody enlightenment in a weekend, or you know, uh, connect with different uh, deities or beings, and that they're not necessarily being truthful. So that's the part that I sort of have a, uh, a little bit of a beef about. But if, so, if the person that is paying them money to do that. As getting something from it, then you know, so be it. But what I've also found there and heard many stories is that there's a lot of uh, I call it, um, yeah, sham, sham shamanism, where people are actually getting money from, from naive uh, you know, clients and not getting very good value for money. So they're they're sort of kind of like defraud, defrauding people. Yeah, you know, it can be tens of thousands of dollars. I've heard sometimes to offer them something that. They can't give them, and so that that does happen up there. And I know it happens in Sedona as well. Um, you know, maybe those people learn something from that experience as well. But uh, my way, I, I like to be truthful and sincere. And uh, so that was one of the reasons I left. You know, because I, I was surrounded by it, and I didn't want to uh, didn't want to be surrounded by it anymore. Boy, I'll tell you, and there's, uh, good, there's good people there too. You you hypnotized me. Uh, you showed me a doorway into a rainforest spirit world. I had these forest animals around me. Just to be clear, there was no drugs. I, I don't know what in the hell you did to me, but I saw this predator-looking thing that had clearly uh, been harvesting, like feeding from my fears and insecurities, and mm -hmm. since then, there's like this womb in my mind where I have uh, the, the another way to be. Fantastic. Yeah, well, one of the, just a brief overview of what the this part of the shamanic process is 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 entering a different state of uh, awareness that he can take his hopefully the client to, so that you can then create a new reality within sort of in a, let's call it the imaginal realm. There's the realms, you know, the fifth dimension and seven dimensional realms that we have that are part of our subconscious or superconsciousness. You in a way can enter those realms and through imagery, through guidance can help to shift the future of their client by actually changing something that may have happened in the past. It's, it's a beautiful thing.
Yeah, you can dream dream into being is what what is you know another way of expressing it. Uh, I I'm a believer. I don't have you're the first shaman I've ever had on my podcast. I have a lot of conspiracy people on and a lot of comedians, and uh, you know you're the real deal. I, I fully I can't wait to get your book in the mail tomorrow. Uh, Alchemical ayahuasca. Take the journey from depression to the sweet spot. I mean, um, you know, I don't have the I don't have a copy of it here, unfortunately, because. It's a beautiful. Uh, I don't have one in the room. It's a beautiful book cover. It's like an amazing book cover that kind of like takes you into the center of the of the book cover and into this sort of mystical world. And so it's almost you can enter this world to to find the sweet spot. And very quickly, the the sweet spot is the place where we heal, and it's the easiest place to get to once you let go of all the the tension and the resistance to accessing it. And so that's what you entered in that experience with me. You entered this place, a sort of a harmonious state where healing happens. And once you were there, then you, you in a way, together, we decide, you know, kind of subconsciously connecting in that way to discover or find out which realm you wanted to start moving into. And, and so you entered that sweet spot, and that's, that's really how the healing happens. And we, we can do it on our own. That My book ends with uh, the last part is kind of like the self-help part where you can actually access that place yourself the place of of uh, the easy place the, the sweet place and people don't really know what it's like until they're there and once they're there they go oh this is it you know this is what he's talking about you know it's, it's a beautiful place to access it's the, and it's actually the easiest way to live you know to be in that sweet spot is the easiest way to live and and uh, we have we all have that's the sovereign choice we have to live in that sweet spot or to live in a place that's hard and tense. Yeah. And, and, you know, I try to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. And I get a lot of pleasure from that. You know? Because yeah. um, a lot of people do, don't do that. It's easier when you don't have to lie and cheat and steal and chicanery and, you know. Yeah. Um, and All right. Well, through experience, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I look at myself in the mirror, and I I, I like who I like. And uh, Alan Waugh, he's he's hot. He's a hot stud muffin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this has been Highway Diary episode three nine two spiritwisdomhealing.com. My guest was Alan Waugh. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Well, I just to add one other sure uh, web address. So she called alchemicalayahuasca.com as well that's a website to the book alchemicalayahuasca.com great i'll have those links in the description below so thanks uh, to see my love to your sister oh and, yeah uh, take care we'll be in touch yes sir